0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text.
0: Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're in sections 111 through 114. And these sections are dealing with a lot of things that are happening after the temple's been built. So take a look at the dates, and you'll see that there's quite a disparity between these sections, and a whole lot of history is going on in between those dates. Yes. I, I mean, I mean, in April 1836, Joseph Smith is meeting with members of the printing firm to discuss the finances of the church. And there's also all this talk about how are we going to reclaim the land in Zion, and the saints also want to purchase even more land in Missouri. And so with all of these things swirling around, there's several thousand dollars in debt due to the construction of the Kirtland Temple, somewhere in the space of fourteen to $18,000, which back then was a lot of money. And on top of all this, in June of 1836, W.W. Phelps writes a letter to Joseph Smith. And in that letter, he informs him that the saints are being asked to leave Clay County. And the leaders in the church up in Ohio write back and say, it's better that we agree with this and we leave than to face another violent expulsion. And so with that, we're also now losing even more lands. And so the news that Joseph gets of this being expelled from Clay County has got to just dash his hopes. And on top of all this, in an effort to try to reclaim some money to try to help pay our debts, Joseph Smith opens a store. And that was probably a really rough decision for him to make because, Bryce, how did people treat Joseph? Yeah, and he
0: stretched thin as it were. I can't imagine adding one more iron in the fire and then the vulnerability that Joseph is going to have here. Yeah, People are starting to turn. They love him, but this is the time period where they begin to
1: turn against him. People would come and they didn't have cash. And out of the goodness of his heart, Joseph would give them the goods. And a lot of times it would be on credit and then they wouldn't pay it. And now you're the prophet. Yeah. And now you're the prophet. Now you're a debt collector. And that can really kind of make that relationship really difficult. And so, knowing this is happening at the time and with all these debts. There's a man who comes to Joseph by the name of Burgess, and he tells Joseph and the brethren that there's a house in Salem that has some money secreted in the cellar, and that if Joseph and a couple of the brethren will go to Salem, this fellow named Burgess will lead them to the house, they'll be able to secure the money, and they'll be able to help alleviate the debts that the saints have. And so after they talk about it sometime, on July 25th, four men head east. To Salem, And that's going to be Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith's brother Hiram, Oliver Cowdery, and Joseph Smith. And so according to the record, they leave Kirtland to travel to New York City and then eventually to Salem. And while they're in New York, they meet with creditors for four days. And then Joseph Smith writes, quote, From New York, we continued our journey to Providence on board a steamer. And from thence to Boston by steam cars, we arrived in Salem, Massachusetts in early August, where we hired a house and occupied it during the month, teaching the people from house to house and preaching publicly as opportunity presented, visiting occasionally sections of this country which are rich in the history of the Pilgrim Fathers of New England. And so, in the context of why they're there in Salem and what they're looking for, we get this revelation to Joseph right when they get there. This is August 6th. 1836. And with this, the Lord's going to give Joseph Smith a very important message right in the beginning of this section. So, Joseph has gone
0: to Salem, Massachusetts, looking for gold in a basement. Honestly, this is kind of a dumb idea. Realistically, is this how a prophet would expect God to handle the debts of the church? Oh, go to Salem and buy a house that has lots of gold in the basement. Is that how God handles situations like this? So you can see this is not the prophet's best idea. Not his best day. Now, allow me to step out and make this very pertinent to all of our lives, and we'll get back to Salem, Massachusetts in a minute. But it is my observation that God is the person we love the most and fear the most. He is loved and dreaded at the same time. And authority figures often are. If you think about that, what two flashing colors would bring you great peace if you heard someone breaking into your house? Red and blue flashing outside your house would bring great peace and comfort. But what happens when you're da- driving down the road and you see those same red and blue lights flashing behind you? Your heart's seen. Now it's dread. <laughs> Authority figures are the people we love and dread the most. And Jesus is kind of like that. Do you remember the night he walked on the water? The first thing that went through their hearts when they saw him was fear. They were terrified of him trying to come and help them. And quite often, we dread God and we're scared to death of him. And yet we love him. So the question in all of our hearts is, is Jesus the Messiah We hope he is, or is he the Messiah we're worried he might be? Because no one knows my mistakes and my frailties better than he does. No one could potentially be more disappointed in me than God. But I know no one loves me more deeply than does the Savior and my Heavenly Father. And that's a hard dichotomy. He knows me enough to be the most disappointed in me, and yet he loves me the most. Don't we all kind of fear that Jesus might be a different Messiah than we hope he is? I know people who love to pray and are scared to pray. I know people who love the scriptures and are scared of the scriptures because I'm not good enough. And when I read in the scriptures that God is so perfect, then I feel like I'm a disappointment to Him. So I love to champion the scriptures that answer that question Is He the Messiah we hope He is, or is He the Messiah we're worried He might be? One of those is one of my favorite stories, and that's the woman with the issue of blood. She has suffered for 12 years and is at the end of her rope. She is desperate. She's gone to doctors, and they've made the condition worse, not better. And here she hears of Jesus. And so she just tackles all of her fears, and she rushes up. Now, she knows she can't touch him because if she touches him, she makes him unclean. But technically, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I haven't touched him, but I can be cleansed. So she reaches out and she touches the hem of that garment and instantly knows she's been cleansed. Now, just ponder the emotion in her heart when she knows this sickness of 12 years is gone. That thrill, that emotion is the Messiah we hope he is his goodness, his healing power. And she touches that hem of his garment and she feels that healing. And then all of a sudden he stops and says, who touched me? Now, can you imagine the emotion in her heart as soon as he said, who touched me? Now she's terrified because she knows if she touches him, she makes him unclean, according to the law of Moses, and he's upset. And now the reality of maybe this is the Jesus he really is. He's mad that I touched him. And so she hides in absolute terror. The scriptures say that fearing and trembling, she finally approaches him. Have you ever felt like If God were to show up suddenly, you would approach him fearing and trembling. I'm not perfect, and he knows it. And I do things all the time that fall short of his expectations. And all of a sudden, if he were to show up and say, who touched me? I too would be fearing and trembling. So here's this divine moment. She's gone from exhilaration to fear. And the first word out of his mouth when he comes to her is, daughter. I think he was saying, I am the Messiah. You dream in the depths of your heart that I am. I see your heart. I know exactly what you were trying to do. And though everyone else may misunderstand, I don't misunderstand. Now, that's one tender moment where we get to see Jesus portray between the two. Is he the Messiah we worry he is, or is he the Messiah we hope him to be? Now, section 111 is another one of those moments. This is not Joseph Smith's best idea. Honestly, this is kind of a dumb idea. I love Joseph Smith with all my heart, but this is a dumb idea but i also see the pressure he's under. i totally get the pressure i totally understand his desperation but this is not how god operates here let me just point you to a house that has a lot of
1: money in the basement I kind of want to give him a pass, too, because I don't remember the exact section. It's either 20 or 21 where the Lord says, in temporal things, you're not going to have strength. Joseph is great at giving revelation, producing text, tying things to antiquity. All this stuff anciently that's just coming through the pen of his scribes is just Brilliant. But he wasn't Warren Buffett. That wasn't his calling. Brigham Young was great at building businesses and trying to get the saints organized. And I just see Joseph going through it as a seer. But we all have strengths, right? He does. And this certainly was not
0: illustration of Joseph's strength. So here he is in Massachusetts. Now, I've wondered how many times when the emotion of the moment went away, when the desperation of the debts kind of subsided, Joseph Smith woke up and said, what was I thinking going to Massachusetts? It's kind of that situation. But in that setting, I want to just champion forever what the Lord says in verse one. And this is the God that we worship. This is the God we hope he is. This is the one that's on our side. The Lord pats him on the back And says, I, the Lord, your God, am not displeased with your coming this journey, notwithstanding your follies. That was a very sweet way of saying, Joseph, really? This was a dumb idea. I think in Texas, the Lord would have said, Joseph, bless your heart. Yeah. Joseph, bless your heart. But what this reveals to me is that God sees the person and the effort. He doesn't focus on the end result. My oldest son, Spencer, when he was younger, he got a hold of one of my golf clubs. Now, I'm not an avid golfer, but I, you know, I do have golf clubs and occasionally will use them. And Spencer got a hold of one of my golf clubs, and I don't know what he was doing, but he broke the head off the club. He just broke it right off. Now, I can imagine in that moment, panic went through my son's heart. My dad is going to be furious that I broke his golf club. And so he went in, kind of like Joseph, feeling desperation, feeling panic. He went into the house and grabbed the scotch tape. And he wrapped it around the head of that golf club, putting it back in place. He probably went through an entire roll of scotch tape to fix the golf club. And then he conveniently put it back in my golf bag. Dad won't notice. Dad dad won't notice. He never golfed. This is just like Joseph Smith in Salem, Massachusetts. This is normal. This is fine. My dad won't notice that there's tape wrapped around the golf club. So he slid it back into the bag and I came home and I realized I can be the kind of father that focuses on the broken golf club, or I can see that little boy, a sweet little boy who made a mistake and is trying to fix it. As silly as his idea was, he's trying to fix his mistake. With every ounce of my soul, I testify that the father we have in heaven is the one that sees the little boy and our attempts at just trying to be good. He is not the one that focuses on the brokenness of the club. He sees the person. This was a silly idea, and yet he just sees
1: Joseph Smith's golden heart. Bless your heart, Joseph. That's, that's brilliant. I love that. There's also some really good wordplay in verse 2, where the Lord says there's treasure in this city. And then he's doing some wordplay in verse 4, where he says, gold and silver that shall be yours. And then verse 10, there are many more treasures than one for you in this city. And I think what the Lord's trying to say is you came here looking
0: for what men treasure. While you're here, why don't you discover what I treasure? Because, no, you're not going to find gold in the basement of a house and go pay your debts for the Kirtland Temple. But you are going to find some incredible truths that will change you. You're going to find records of people who are clamoring for their work to be done. Because what the Lord's going to say is, you came here for the wrong kind of treasure. But while you're here, you can find the right kind of treasure. So talk to people. Yeah. Interact with people. Learn the history of this city because there's a great lesson for the Latter-day Saints to be learned right here in Salem, Massachusetts, and it's going to play out in
1: Missouri. Yeah. And so the Lord tells him in verse 9 to go and inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants and founders of this city. And then in verse 11, be you as wise as serpents and yet without sin. And I think one of the things the Lord's telling him is spend some time and look at what happened here in Salem. There were witch trials in the 1600s. Think about
0: Salem, Massachusetts, and its history, and how it might have
1: changed things if we'd learned those lessons going into Missouri. Yeah. I can't help but see that this visit to Salem is a gentle reminder from heaven of the dangers of being overzealous. And so, as they go to museums and they start seeing the history of the ancient inhabitants of Salem, Oliver sees this town that was founded by these people that had these high hopes of establishing a religious utopia, but in their zealousness to do it, they actually tore each other apart. So, Oliver starts writing stuff down. And This information has really been packaged well by Craig Osler. He wrote a paper called Treasures, Witches, and Ancient Inhabitants. And we link this in the show notes. You can go read the whole article. I would encourage you to do so because we're just kind of hitting the highlights. But back to the story, in Oliver's writings, he writes that this witch business began in 1691 and was so effectually carried on for about two years that the innocent blood of hundreds moistened the earth to gratify the vile ambition of jealous mortals. Now, I don't think there were hundreds that were killed, but that's Oliver's take from what he sees. He writes further, he says, I presume your patience is exhausted in reading of this horrid affair one which spreads and must while the account remains upon the pages of history or in the minds of men, a dark gloom over Salem with all its modern politeness, refinement, and religion. And the reason why I think this is important is because it's 1836 and in 1838, just a few months after this revelation and after they get back to Kirtland and and they're going to have to leave and they're going to go to Missouri, the saints are going to among themselves cause so much problems and then later carry that over to the Missourians that we are going to have what's called the Mormon War. Now, I think that Joseph doesn't see all that's going to happen. I think that the War of 1838 even caught him by surprise uh, based on what he writes and the things that he says when he's in prison. But I think the visit to Salem proved to be a warning to all four of these men. So back to the story of Salem. There's a Catholic convent near Salem, and it's been burned to the ground. And this is more recent. The Catholic convent was burned in 1834, so just a couple years prior. two years before. Yeah, so one of the things Oliver sees is he sees, okay, that was 1691, but we're still doing this stuff. This convent was a catholic structure but it was at a private protestant school and so this compound included like a convent and a school a chapel and some gardens and other buildings most of the students at the school were from protestant families but what happened was there was rumors And this wasn't true, but there were rumors by these anti-Catholic Protestants that there were women being held against their will that were forced to be nuns. And it led to a mob-inspired terrorism where eventually they burned down the entire compound. And so as they walk around this compound, Oliver writes once again his thoughts. And he writes, it was religious persecution. Disgraceful, shameful religious persecution. One or more religious societies rising up against another. Is this religion, Oliver writes? The good people here, being very tenacious of right, as well as the tradition of their ancestors, thought in doing God's service to burn a Catholic convent because the Catholic religion was different from theirs. And so Oliver really is troubled by what he sees. And my take on Oliver and kind of his heart, Bryce, is Oliver is going to see some violence that happens in 1838 and this is tough. This is sticky history. But there was violence on both sides, from the Missourians and from the Mormons, as as they're called in 1838. And when Oliver sees the violence that the Mormons are putting on the Missourians... Can, can you
0: s- imagine the connections he's making right. to the past, to the present, to the future? And I just wonder if Oliver all of a sudden says,
1: maybe we haven't learned from history. Even Joseph writes this... He writes, when will man cease to war with man and wrest from him his sacred rights of worshiping his God according as his conscience dictates? Holy Father, Joseph writes, hasten the day. So I see this toleration that both Oliver and Joseph want as they go and visit this setting. And I think in this vein, it can be seen that the visit to Salem proved to be a warning to all four of these men. For just in two years, the religious fanaticism and fervor would sweep through the saints in Missouri. And then when you combine that with this militaristic fervor, when we talk about this, we're talk about the Danites, like they're a group of members of the church that get violent and you, you combine religion with violence, in my opinion, the saints participate in things that were unforeseen. And so violence would certainly ensue on both sides of the conflict as we'll discuss next time. But I can't help but see that this visit to Salem is a gentle reminder from heaven to Joseph, Hiram, Oliver, and Sidney of the dangers of being overzealous. I think that's the main key. So Blake Osler says this about this visit to Salem, quote, it is difficult to determine with absolute certainty this journey's influence on the prophet and on the other three leaders of the church. On the other hand, it appears to be clear that they had many opportunities to learn about the need for the Latter-day Saints to welcome into their communities individuals of goodwill from all faiths or even from no faith. The lessons of justice, equality, fairness, tolerance, and inclusion, so important to the fledgling restored church, were further imprinted upon the minds of its leaders during their time in Salem. It appears highly likely that the Lord sought to ensure that these brethren learned the distinction between intolerance for wickedness and tolerance for different religious beliefs. Later in Nauvoo, The prophet Joseph would write to welcome individuals of all religious persuasions or no persuasions to join the saints in building up that city. The Salem dream was shattered when its early inhabitants became overzealous in their attempts to establish their new Jerusalem by persecuting innocent people. Evidently, the Lord hoped to warn and educate the early leaders of the church concerning the tendency of some... In religious societies to establish their own righteousness by excessively crusading against real and supposed evils among them. When this occurs, innocent individuals suffer at their hands and religion becomes a stink in the land. And I just think that's brilliant. And I see the Lord trying to teach them in preparation for what's to come. And here we are in
0: 2021 and the gauntlet has been thrown down at our feet. Are we learning that same lesson? Yeah. Because we, so many people suffer today because of religious zealotry and exclusion because you don't believe what I believe. And if we're not going to learn the lesson, then Joseph's visit to Salem and the whole lesson that the Lord in, intended to teach has been lost. We have to champion that cause. We have to say, that won't be us. We won't be the ones that are guilty of religious zealotry and exclusion that we're going to let the net gather of every different kind, and we're going to welcome them in. It was significant enough in the Book of Mormon for Mormon to include the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's being welcomed among the Nephite society, the very group of people who may very well have contributed to the death of their fathers and mothers in previous generations. They were worried, will the Nephites welcome us in? Will they consider us equals and brethren? So let me read what happened when Ammon walked in and says, will you accept these converted Lamanites? Alma chapter 27, verse 22, it came to pass that the voice of the people came saying, behold, we will give up the land of Jershon. In other words, we will make room for them among us. We will give up the land of Jershon which is on the east by the sea, which joins the land Bountiful, which is on the south of the land Bountiful. And this land, Jershon is the land which we will grant unto our brethren. Four more times in the next two verses, they refer to them as our brethren. And then lastly, they say, we will set our armies between the land of Jershon and the land of Nephi, that we may protect our brethren. The Nephites say three things. Number one, we'll make room for them. Number two, we'll consider them our brethren. And number three, we will protect them from harm and danger. When anyone wants to join our society, we will make room for you. We will consider you our brethren and we will protect you from harm, whatever your history might be. That's the message that has to come out this week from Salem, Massachusetts. Joseph was reminded of the dangers of religious zealotry.
1: And we as a church have to learn that lesson. It's a really good lesson. It's a great section, even though it's messy. I think it's beautiful, it's so good.
0: I love that first verse. Now, before we jump into section 112, can I set this up a little bit? The Book of Mormon speaks about a cycle of pride. This pride cycle that just rotates so quickly. So, I want you to imagine a big wheel. Now, we'll put a picture of this in the show notes, but I want you to picture this big circle. And at the very top, it says righteousness. We start when a group of people or an individual wants to be righteous. Now, what happens when we're righteous? Righteousness leads to blessings, blessings then lead to prosperity. Now, prosperity is a critical spot on the circle. What do you do when you become prosperous? Now, naturally, prosperity leads to pride. Pride leads to sin. Now you've come halfway around the circle. You've gone from righteousness to sin because he blessed you. That's so dumb. We turn against God because He prospers us. We go from righteousness to blessings, to prosperity, to pride, to sin. Now, the other side of the circle usually goes like this. Sin, in some form or another, sin leads to pain. Pain naturally leads us to humility. Humility leads to repentance, which leads to righteousness. And we're right back at the top of the circle. So, righteousness often leads to prosperity, prosperity to pride, pride to sin, sin to pain, pain to humility, and then back to repentance and righteousness. I would suggest that there are two major positions on this cycle that need our attention what we do in prosperity and what we do in pain. Pain should lead to humility. But sometimes pain leads to pride. Prosperity usually leads to pride, but prosperity should lead to humility. Those two junctions, prosperity and pain, are critical moments. If we choose humility in that moment, we bypass the negative parts of the pride cycle. You could go from righteousness to prosperity to humility if prosperity led to humility, but usually prosperity leads to pride, and pain often leads to humility, but pain could lead to pride, and then you cycle down the negative part of the pride cycle. Now, looking at church history in this big picture, those two critical junctions, prosperity and pain, are about to come upon us very quickly. The prosperity that is poured out in Kirtland after the Kirtland Temple dedication, the spiritual manifestations that happen, the glory of God that is felt, the number of people pouring in, wanting to live in Kirtland and needing to buy land and land prices increasing, Kirtland becomes a moment of prosperity. Missouri is going to be a moment of pain. Now, ideally, both prosperity and pain should lead to humility. Unfortunately, Kirtland prosperity led to pride. And then we're going to move into Missouri, where the pain of Missouri will lead us to humility. I wonder what would have happened if the prosperity of Kirtland would have led to humility. And it could have. It didn't have to. It didn't have to lead to pride. What pain might that have spared us in Missouri? Missouri will teach us to be humble. But if Kirtland had taught us to be humble in prosperity, maybe church history would be a little bit different. In section 112, we begin to have the underpinnings of the pride that's coming into Kirtland. And it's going to cause division among the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And people will turn against the prophet Joseph Smith because they don't handle prosperity well. And this is going to become an ugly period in church history because of prosperity. So now in section 112, you see the Lord pleading with the quorum of the 12 to be humble. Look at verse 10, be thou humble, Thomas B. Marsh. He says in verse 15, exalt not yourselves. He's going to say in verse 28, purify your hearts before me. And in verse 33, how great is your calling, cleanse your heart and your garments. So here's the call for humility. Mike, would you set this up? Would you set up Section 112? Let's talk about what's going on in Kirtland, and then we'll dive into the specific plea for humility before it leads to pride.
1: Yeah, there's so much going on here, and we are going to unpack so much more of this in the next podcast, so this is a brief sketch. But essentially what happened was when the saints got to Kirtland, we had all these people, they had religious excitement, they were industrious, they were very successful, many of them, And we started to purchase land and to cultivate it and to build homes. And then we construct the temple. One of the things we didn't have was a lot of cash. We were land rich, but we were cash poor. And so in January of 1837, the saints established what's called the Kirtland Safety Society. And essentially it's a bank. And what the saints decided to do, they had to print currency And they had to find a way that we could have cash so that we could function in this society where everyone had land and wheat and animals, but we didn't necessarily have cash. And so they printed this money in this bank when Joseph set it up he told the saints this bank could only last and could only work upon just and holy principles. We have to be honest. We have to not speculate. We have to function in a way where things are equitable. And I think Bryce, some of the people thought, well, we've had these marvelous spiritual experiences. Joseph's a prophet. We can't possibly go wrong. Almost like the Zoramitis of like, we're God's chosen. Well, that's in January in May of 1837 across the board in Ohio. There's a massive financial collapse and banks panic and people make a run on the currency and the Kirtland Safety Society is not exempt from this problem. And so if you look at the date of this revelation, the date is July 23rd, 1837. Well, it was at this point when certain individuals in the Kirtland Safety Society were embezzling money. They would take the money, then they would go out into the public and purchase things with the money. And then when the money came back into the bank, they would take the money back out and they would make more purchases. And it depends historically which person you read as to who they're to blame. We put all this in the show notes. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. You can read it and decide for yourself uh, who's to blame. But there were individuals historically that were uh, finger pointing. And from my reading of history, Joseph's not to blame. Joseph was doing all that he could to help the bank survive. But in July of 1837, he resigned from working with the bank and warned them that this was going the wrong direction. And so Joseph sees some individuals at the bank being dishonest. He sees the increase in the speculation of land. So in the fall of 1836, Hebrew C. Kimball comes back from his mission. And this is what he writes. He says, when I left Kirtland, a city lot was worth about $150. But when I came back, it was worth between $500 and $1,000, according to location. And then he says, some men, when I left, could hardly get enough food to eat. And on my return, I found men that supposedly were of great wealth. In fact, everything in the place seemed to be moving in a great prosperity and all seemed determined to become rich. In just a few months... All of a sudden, with this influx of these converts, and as more people are coming to Kirtland, and as the bank is established, people get greedy. And Bryce, I see the pride cycle, just like you've been talking about. And so Joseph sees this is not going to go well for the saints. Brigham Young will say many years later, as quoted by
0: President Kimball in The Miracle of Forgiveness, the worst fear I have about this people is that they will get rich in this country. Forget God and his people, wax fat and kick themselves out of the church and go to hell. This people has stood mobbing, robbing, poverty, and all manner of persecution and been true. But my greatest fear is that they cannot stand wealth. And going back to that pride cycle, what we do when we hit prosperity is a critical junction. Does your prosperity make you humble? grateful for God's blessings? Or does your prosperity cause you to focus on yourself and seek riches like happens in Kirtland, and then it actually leads to pride? If prosperity leads to humility, we bypass pride, sin, and pain. Unfortunately, far too often, prosperity leads to pride. And that's exactly what happens in Kirtland. So, just briefly, go back to section 112. Listen to what the Lord's trying to say to them and to all of us. The Lord will say in section 112, verse 24, that vengeance is coming. Vengeance cometh speedily upon the inhabitants of the earth. And He says, It's going to start, verse 25, upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth. First among those among you, saith the Lord who have professed to know my name and have not known me and have blasphemed against me in the
1: midst of my house. Also historically, Bryce, next month, some guys calling themselves the old standard go to the temple and using violence, make threats against the saints. So I see this also as prophetic even. It is.
0: And I think the Lord is waving his arms today in 2021 saying, you're in the same position. If you're going to call yourselves my saints, if you're going to carry that title." that we are the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then act like the people you profess to be. If not, don't be surprised if vengeance comes upon the church itself, those members of the church who are acting hypocritically, because that's what the Lord seems to not stand the most. If you read the New Testament, what caused the most severe reactions from the Savior was the hypocrisy of the Jews. He didn't react that way to sinners. He reacted that way to hypocrisy. And so he's simply saying, look, pride is not congruent with sainthood. So if you're going to be my people, you need to be humble. Be thou humble and the Lord thy God will lead thee. Cleanse your heart, exalt not yourself. And so I think there's a great message in section 112. Now there's one more that I'm going to add to that. Joseph Smith calls Heber C. Kimball on a mission to go to England, and Thomas B. Marsh felt like it was the duty of the Twelve to organize the missions. He hadn't quite grasped the concept of the First Presidency and the keys and the hierarchy of the prophet, and Thomas B. Marsh was zealously offended because Joseph sent someone on a mission. And so the Lord says in verse 15, Exalt not yourself, rebel not against my servant Joseph, for verily I say unto you, I am with him, my hand shall be over him, and the keys which I have given unto him and also unto you word shall not be taken from him until I come. In other words, sometimes in our pride, we turn against even the Lord's leaders, And the Lord says, no, don't exalt yourself and rebel against the prophet because I am with him. And I think the same thing could be said today about Russell M. Nelson. Don't in your prosperity think you're smarter than the prophet and
1: rebel against him because I am with him. It's interesting that Joseph gave a lot of warnings Like, you can't operate a bank if you're just going to take the money and then embezzle it. Like, that's just not how a bank is run. And then they blame the profit when it failed. And, And Thomas is no exception. But I think sometimes we think, oh, I know more than this individual who's, you know, my priesthood leader. And there's something to be said about that idea where the Lord just says, you know what, Thomas, you've got to humble yourself but Thomas does leave the church during the Mormon War because of a lot of things. I think sometimes we oversimplify Thomas with the story of the cream where his wife and another gal were sharing cream. Strippings and, of and, milk. Yeah, the stripping story. And we, we kind of oversimplify it. He's certainly a complicated character, and he had feelings, and he he was a rational individual. And he does come back. Yeah. And— He will confess as to what led
0: him out. Hear what Thomas B. Marsh will say many years later in Salt Lake. He will say, quote, I have frequently wanted to know how my apostasy began, and I have come to the conclusion that I must have lost the Spirit of the Lord out of my heart. The next question is, how and when did you lose the Spirit? I became jealous of the prophet, and when I saw double and overlooked everything that was right and spent all my time in looking for the evil— and then when the devil began to lead me, it was easy for the carnal mind to rise up, which is anger, jealousy, and wrath. I could feel it within me. I felt angry and wrathful, and the Spirit of the Lord being gone, I was blinded. And I thought I saw a beam in Brother Joseph's eye, but it was nothing but a mote, and my own eye was filled with the beam. But I thought I saw a beam in his eye, and I wanted to get it out. And as Brother Heber said, I got mad, and I wanted everybody else to be mad. And I talked with Brother Brigham and Brother Heber, and I wanted them to be mad like myself. And I saw that they were not mad, and I got madder still because they were not. Well, this is about the end of my hypocrisy. Hearing him confess that years later in Salt Lake, and then going back to section 112, can you hear the Lord helping him in advance to deal with these things where he says, "'Exalt not yourself.'" rebel not against my servant, Joseph Smith, for I say unto you, I am with him. And I think that's typical of all of our lives. The Lord will give us warnings in advance of dangers that are coming.
1: Yep. So if I was to pick like four things in this section that I think are important, one of them is that darkness is going to come. If you look at verses 23 through 28 You've talked about the vengeance in verse 24. So I'll just read verse 23. Verily I say unto you, darkness covereth the earth and gross darkness the minds of the people and all flesh has become corrupt before my face. This is in the height of the banking system collapsing in Ohio, not just the one in Kirtland. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is verse 25, that it's gonna start in his house. And so in August of 1837, a group of individuals led by Warren Parrish and John Boynton. They took Bowie knives and they led an armed group of men into the temple to take it over. And later in the fall of 1837, Warren Parrish, John Boynton and Luke Johnson and 30 other citizens of the church organized themselves into a group called the old standard. And they basically were like, we're going to start our own church. And they wanted to put David Whitmer in charge. And so David Whitmer His apostasy is in this state where he's starting to see Joseph's humanness, and he's starting to think, well, maybe I can do better. And so those two things, that darkness is coming and it's going to start at my house, then leads into this idea that those that are converted are going to be healed. So if you look in verse 13, at the end of the verse, the Lord says, if you're converted, then you'll be healed. And that you can have a marvelous discussion on what does it mean to be converted. And there's that conversation Jesus has with Peter where he says, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. And often we read that and think, how could Peter not be converted? And I think what the Lord's trying to say is, you felt the Spirit and know that I'm the Son of God. But it's another thing that your nature has changed. And you're totally with me. And your, your will becomes my will. And I think this, Bryce, was a challenge. There was all this wealth to be had. And they've had all these spiritual experiences. And it's almost like the God of heaven is saying, are you converted? Do you love wealth more than you love me? And then finally, I think this is important. And I think this is very relevant for what's happening right now today on the earth. And that's verse 32. Verse 32 reads, verily, I say unto you, the keys of the dispensation, which ye have received have come down from the fathers and last of all being sent down from heaven unto you. Now, my take on that verse is that the Lord's talking about the first presidency, that they have the keys. And I think if we can just understand that, and I'm talking to myself, but I think as members of the church, if we realize that the keys designate position and authority, I think that's so important because today it can be so confusing. And so whenever you're super confused, just ask yourself, who are the apostles and what is the message. And we read this in First Nephi, where Nephi talks about the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And if we follow them, they will lead us in the way of life and salvation. And I think, Bryce, that's so relevant today. And right here is the beginning of those tests where the saints are going to have to decide where they stand because it's going to get real, real sticky, real fast.
0: So that now leaves us to section 113. Now, notice the date. So, 112 is July of 1837, and the very next section is March of 38. And a lot's happened. A lot's happened. Now, Joseph Smith has left Kirtland, Ohio. The Safety Society has failed. Many people blame Joseph. Apostles will leave the church during this time period. Many of them will turn against Joseph. Joseph is now in Missouri. But I love that 113 was given in the middle of that. This section is to remind Joseph hey, I'm still with you. I'm still going to give you insights into the scriptures. Section 113 is a clarification of some of the writings of Isaiah.
1: And it's also telling Joseph, hey, Joseph, let me remind you who you are. In the midst of such a dark time, I mean, he leaves Kirtland and he never comes back, and he must have been so depressed to leave the temple that costs so much in the hands of, and it's complicated... Uh, you know, the saints are going to eventually get out of Kirtland. but it essentially, I think he looks at this as we're leaving this into the hands of these enemies. And the Lord in the midst of this dark, dark time is like, let me tell you who you are. And in the midst of so many things happening right now, you can see president Nelson trying to remind the youth of the church. Hey guys, don't forget you are the house of Israel. Let me remind you who you are. Yeah.
0: Section 113 is Isaiah prophesying of a branch that will grow out of a dead tree and flourish. Picture Israel as this dead tree and then comes out this little branch that grows out of the dead tree and then becomes a mighty tree itself. That's what modern day Israel led
1: by Joseph Smith is becoming. And there's a picture of it in the show notes. You can see it. It's right out of one of our church manuals. This tree that's been cut down, this stump, this rod, like you've talked about, is coming out. And the question that Joseph has, this question of the rod, what is it? The Lord in verse four says, it is a servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Ephraim or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is laid much power. And my take on verse 4, Bryce, is that's Joseph. There's no question in my mind whose that is.
0: I think it's the humility factor in Joseph and not writing that into the revelation. But I think he's clearly saying, Joseph, you are that rod. The church is that branch that's coming out. Have hope that Israel is going to rise again.
1: Yeah. And by the way, I I do think this is uh, also really rooted in all this stuff going on in Samuel with kingship where Nathan comes to David and says the throne will continue in perpetuity. It will continue this throne or the house of David. And so big picture, Joseph is a dual house member, part of Jesse or part of the house of David or the tribe of Judah. That's what that is. And then also of Ephraim. So he has like this dual citizenship in his blood. It kind of speaks to this if you look at the end of verse 8, where it says to bring again Zion and put on the strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage. I think we saw this in section 86, where the Lord talked about, no, you are literally by blood of the house of Israel. You are through Abraham and through Jacob, literally Israel. And I think that verse eight is hinting to this, that Joseph is literally by lineage connected to these lines. And so this is very much an unpacking of Isaiah 11. Just know that there's a lot to unpack in section 113, but I think big picture is the trees coming back. It's a little rod right now, 1838. But the idea of this tree as an image for God's kingdom or for The lineage of his servants, the men and women that bring about Zion and build the house of the forest of Lebanon. That's a metaphor for the temple. The house of the forest of Lebanon is the temple. And God says, if you build my house, I will build your house. And so if you bow to his scepter, he gives you the scepter. This is the great exchange. And the image here is the tree. It's beautiful. It is. Now, before we leave that idea, I think there's a little bit
0: more in 113 than just clarifying Isaiah. It fascinates me that God, right here in the beginning of the Missouri chapter, in the darkest days of church history, would talk about a branch coming out of a dead tree and flourishing. That ought to give everyone hope in our dark days, that there will always come a branch out of the dead tree and flourish. When Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped years ago and horrible things done to her, one day she had a similar experience, and I want to read from her biography. She said, I sat on the bucket and cried all morning long. Now, this is the day after the abduction, the day after a horrible night. I sat on the bucket and cried all morning long. At one point, I remember looking at a tiny branch of a mountain oak. Sometime before, the man had taken an axe to clear the campground, cutting back a couple of small trees and branches. A stump had been left jutting out of the bare ground, and the man had used it to tie down one of the corners of the tent. A small sapling had started to grow out of the side of the stump. Just a few leaves, a single branch, smaller than my pinky finger. I stared at that sapling as I struggled to find a place to grow. Over the summer, I would stare at that tiny tree for hours, admiring its determination. Its mother tree had been cut away, leaving it as the only spot of green surrounded by bare dirt and plastic tarps and tents. Its bed was hot and dry and dusty, yet it kept on fighting to survive. I resolved once again whatever it takes, to survive. Isn't it funny that a small little sapling coming out of a broken tree gave Elizabeth Smart a great deal of comfort? Isn't it interesting that going into Missouri, the Lord mentions a small little sapling coming out of a dead tree? If your trees of your hope and the trees of your faith have been cut down, I remind you that God will grow a sapling out. Don't give up hope. Growth will come. And that's exactly what happened to the church. That's what happened to Elizabeth Smart. That's what happens to so many of us. You can cut this tree down, but you can't stop its growth. God will be with us
1: and that little sapling will survive. Rice right, hearing you talk about that reminds me of the story of Nephi, where Nephi sees in vision, his descendants just go the wrong way. And I think this is one of the reasons why he liked Isaiah so much, because one of Isaiah's phrases that he just repeats over and over again is that a remnant shall return. And that is a fundamental message of the Book of Mormon, that even though this people rejected the Savior, a remnant would return. You know, we look at the history of the Gentiles as they came out of Christianity and lost their way, but there was always that thread of light. And even today, and as we're swimming in secularism, there's so much darkness, but I see that there still is a tree and it will still grow even in the midst of this awful messiness. Now, section 114 is our ending. And this is where David Patton, who's an apostle, he's told he's going to go on a mission next spring. But the problem with section 114 is And I don't think it's a problem, but some people do is David Patton dies. He dies in the Mormon war on October 25th, 1838, in the height of the Mormon war, he shot at what's called the battle of Crooked River and they bring David to his wife, Phoebe and his dying words to Phoebe were this, I feel that I've kept the faith and I finished my course. Henceforth, there is laid for me a crown, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give me. And then when he's looking right at Phoebe, he says to her, Phoebe, whatever else you do, do not deny the faith. And then he prayed, Father, I ask thee in the name of Jesus Christ that thou will release my spirit and receive it unto thyself. And then to those around him, he said, Brethren, you've held me by your faith, but do give me up and let me go. I beseech you. David Patton died at 10 o'clock PM on October 25th, 1838 at the age of 38. There are so many stories of Phoebe's bravery after the death of her husband. You see enemies to the church, they come to her. And, and by the way, some of these enemies are doing horrible things to the women in 1838. And there's a story about Phoebe. And this is told by Velate Kimball. She says that when the mobs came to her house... Valate says, I can never forget her fearless and determined look. Around her waist was a belt to which was attached a large bowie knife. She had fire in her stove and a large iron kettle full of boiling water and a big tin dipper in her hand. Intending, she said, to fight if any one of those demons came in here. She did not seem in the least excited. Her countenance was perfectly calm and she shed no tears. In other words, Phoebe was a fireball. And when the mobbers were going around causing problems, she was unafraid. And Phoebe does. She stays firm in the faith. And she dies in the faith as David W. Patton wished. But like we mentioned, David Patton died. So after the 12 go on their mission, and this is a mission that David does not fulfill. They go in 1839. There were some saints in Nauvoo in the 1840s that believed that David W. Patton continued his ministry among the English peoples in the spirit world, that he did go on a mission, but on the other side of the veil. And we can trace this belief through a convert by the name of Anne Booth. This woman was taught by William Clayton. William Clayton is going to be a very close associate of Joseph Smith, especially in the Nauvoo period. And we have a lot of Joseph's thoughts written in William Clayton's pen. And William Clayton, he's on this mission in England. And he teaches this woman, Anne Booth, who's the wife of Robert Booth of Manchester. And she has this experience after she's baptized in March of 1840. And she related it to the missionaries that taught her. And here are some excerpts from her vision that she has. On arriving at the door of the uppermost prison... Speaking of the spirit world, Ann Booth says, I beheld one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb who had been martyred in America, standing at the door of the prison, holding a key in his hand, with which he opened and unlocked the door that went in, and I followed him. So she's having this vision experience and she's following this apostle. And she relates that she's never even heard of David W. Patton when she has this vision. The apostle then commenced to preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. When the hundreds of prisoners gave a shout with a voice saying, glory be to God forever and ever. The apostle then called to John Wesley by name, who came forward quickly and both went down into the water, and the apostle baptized him. Coming out of the water, he laid his hands on him for the gift of the Holy Ghost, at the same time ordaining him to the priesthood of Aaron. The apostle then retired to the place where he first stood. And John Wesley then proceeded to baptize a man by the name of Kilbum, and then John Madison and William Scott and John Tongue, who were Methodist preachers with whom I had been acquainted personally. And after this, he baptized all the prisoners— Amounting to many hundreds. And after they were baptized, the apostle laid his hands on them and confirmed them. So Ann Booth has this experience. She relates that she's never even heard of David W. Patton when she has this vision. And this experience eventually came back, and Brigham Young heard it, and then Wilfred Woodruff heard it, and he wrote it in his journal. And we think that Brigham Young sends a letter to his wife, Mary Ann, telling her about this and that that's how this story was shared amongst the saints in Nauvoo. And so as this story is told, many of the saints in Nauvoo see this as this is David's mission. He did go on a mission, but on the other side of the veil. And so in Nauvoo, this has great significance to the saints. So
0: clearly, David W. Patton was a tremendous church leader, and his loss is going to sting and be painful. But the idea that the Lord is trying to portray here is, my church rolls forward, even at the loss of a great man like David W. Patton, who I'm going to take into the spirit world and he's going to fulfill a mission there. But the loss of David W. Patton doesn't hamper the work from moving forward, nor does the loss of when good men turn against the church and fight against it. The Lord says in verse 2, For verily thus saith the Lord, that inasmuch as there are those among you who deny my name, others shall be planted in their stead and receive their bishopric. The loss of a good man doesn't stop the work. The betrayal of other people won't stop the work. And we're about to see the betrayal of church leaders, but the work will go forward. We will eventually see the death of Joseph Smith himself. And at least one newspaper the next day will broadcast, thus ends Mormonism, thinking that when Joseph is gone, the church is dead. But the loss of great leaders, including Joseph Smith, will not hamper the work from going forward. The betrayal of apostates will not hamper the work from going forward. This work will move forward. I want to end with Elder Bruce R. McConkie's second-to-last conference talk before he was taken, a great church leader. He stood up in October of 1984. He will die in April of 1985. And Elder McConkie said the following, the church is like a great caravan, organized, prepared, following an appointed course, with its captain of tens and captains of hundreds all in place. What does it matter if a few barking dogs snap at the heels of the weary travelers or that predators claim those who fall by the wayside? The caravan moves on. Is there a ravine to cross, a miry mud hole to pull through, a steep grade to climb? So be it. The oxen are strong and the teamsters wide. The caravan moves on. Are there storms that rage along the way, floods that wash away the bridges, deserts to cross and rivers to ford? Such is life in this fallen sphere. The caravan moves on. Ahead is the celestial city, the eternal Zion of our God, where all who maintain their position in the caravan shall find food and drink and rest. Thank God that the caravan moves on.
1: And with that, we thank you for listening. We will see you next time when we cover section 115 to 120. Thanks for sharing your time with us this week.
0: Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.